Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Nerdverse Podcast. This is episode 98 and today we have with us Dan Watkins, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson and I'm John Farthing. It's a recommendations episode today so we're going to treat you to some of the great things we've seen, heard and read recently. So let's get started. Do you not watch most films now? At home, with one eye on the screen and one eye on your mobile phone. It's the only way to watch a movie. <laughs> Ridley Scott told us. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to second screen if I can help it. Louise has the habit of watching a film while simultaneously reading the IMDb <laughs> trivia section and giving me a constant stream of behind-the-scenes facts and information. It's like having your very own commentary track only without anybody in any way well-informed about the production or what happened during it. Well, that's quite nice in a way. <laughs> Does she do that for all films, or is that just the ones that you make her watch? Mainly the ones that I make her watch. Mm. Okay, well, that's fair enough then. Streaming services don't really do commentary tracks. Avo does. Okay. Does Mubi, Andy? I know you have Mubi. Does that have any extra features? You get cream for that nowadays. No, it doesn't. That's very disappointing, because I really wanted the, uh, the volleyball film. I really wanted to know what the director had to say about that. Surely it would just be the same thing over and over again. <laughs> yeah, just the director repeating the same five seconds. Well, for the majority of films on Mubi, uh, you can't really get a director's commentary these days because lots of them will be in a Hungarian prison or something. Hmm. So, Dan, you've been to the cinema. I have been to the cinema. So this isn't your recommendation, but you've waited a long, long time for a sequel to a film. We've all waited quite a long time because this film was due to come out, I think, a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And due to various pandemic reasons, it's taken until November 2021 for Ghostbusters Afterlife to come out. It was one I wasn't massively anticipating because we got a sequel to Ghostbusters and it was Ghostbusters 2 and it's really fun. And then we got another one which wasn't. Ah, it was it was fine. Kate McKinnon was great. Um, yeah. um, <laughs> Sexist. Ghostbusters Afterlife takes a very different tone to Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2. It felt a lot more like an 80s Spielberg-y Amblin kind of film. It used the universe of Ghostbusters and it told a different kind of story in it. McKenna Grace is the main actor and she was absolutely brilliant. But a lot of it was engineered to give you warm, fuzzy, nostalgic feelings about things. Right. And I love Ghostbusters. I'm wearing a Ghostbusters t-shirt right now. Uh, He's not. That's the weird thing. <laughs> it's a Ghostbusters 2 t-shirt. Uh <laughs> And I've watched the first film loads of times. I've watched the second film loads of times. I watched the real Ghostbusters obsessively as a kid. But I don't get the warm, fuzzy nostalgia feelings if mm. I see a Proton Pack or a PKE meter or something like that. I think because there's never been a long gap where I haven't watched Ghostbusters or have almost forgotten about it right. for its reappearance to then make me go, ah, I remember those because... Mm. I've spent the last two weeks playing the PS4 Ghostbusters game, so okay. I'm completely used to Ghostbusters-y things in my life. So it didn't quite have the effect on me that I think the director, Jason Reitman, was trying to go for of, do you remember this thing from the film that you loved? A ghost trap is unveiled for the first time, and the music goes, <gasps> and you're meant to well up with nostalgic feelings. It was definitely trying to do that, and it didn't quite do that for me. But I know there are people that it will do that for. So would your advice be not to wallow in nostalgia for the week or two before watching it? I think it depends on you as an individual, because there have been other so-called legacy sequels mm -hmm. that have really done that for me. Bill and Ted Face the Music last year did work in that way for me. Yeah. Star Wars The Force Awakens was the big one where it... If you take it objectively, when Ray and Finn in that film see the Millennium Falcon for the first time and John Williams' music cues up, that's intended for us as the audience, not for the world of the film. 
that ship and the things they find in there have no meaning to them, but they do to us as an audience. In Star Wars, that worked for me. And I was sitting there in the cinema going, oh, things, things from Star Wars. Um, there will be people... In that voice, as I uh, abso- It was absolutely that voice. There are people for whom Ghostbusters will have that same feeling. It didn't for me. That could be a problem with me. I've seen critics who've hated Afterlife mm-hmm. for doing that. And it's not a bad film at all. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It is a different kind of Ghostbusters film, but not necessarily in a bad way. I like that they weren't just doing a retread like the sort of female version did. I like that it was prepared to go to different places and be something different. Those aspects seem to have worked, is that right? They definitely worked for me as a story. Uh, It worked quite well. And by doing that, it felt like it wasn't completely trying to say, here are things you remember, which some legacy sequels do tend to fall into the trap of I love the original so much. I mean, I'm sat here and there's a there's an XO one to one side of me and a Peter Eggman to the other side of the room somewhere. And I don't think it had that kind of iconic imagery in a way something like a Star Wars does. I think what people remember about it is the characters and the plot, which yeah. are the two things that are not in the new one. Yeah, you say that, but there is there is a community on Twitter for whom this film is absolutely perfect because it does those things. Mm. I think if you rely on that too much in a Superman Returns kind of way, which mm-hmm. I think was an example you, Andy, gave of a legacy sequel, it doesn't quite work in the same way. These things so often trade exclusively on nostalgia, and I, mm. I hate that. It takes me right out of the film. I think it's cheap. I think it's uh, really, really poor filmmaking, and I think it spoils these things for me a bit. So I don't want to see Ghostbusters Afterlife. The Blade Runner sequel seemed to succeed by mm-hmm. not doing that. I liked that it was so different and felt different and looked different, rather than just slavishly copying the original. The original one, of course, is the most boring film ever made. So. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I forgot you weren't the right audience for that remark. Yeah, I think ones that work tend to be the ones that don't foreground the nostalgia, where you can watch it without having seen the original and you can come to it 30 years later, and you'll still get something enjoyable out of it. Top Gun Maverick that's coming out. I've seen Top Gun. I don't love Top Gun, and I probably won't go and see Maverick because I'll be lost a lot of the time when they're going, that guy that was in the film, here is someone related to him, and I meant to have a reaction to that. Mm. Uh, The Matrix Resurrections is another one, and it looks cool in the trailer, But if I don't remember everything about the other three Matrix films, am I going to enjoy it? Mm. 20 years later to remember it all? Resurrections looks like it's going very much down the Force Awakens quasi-remake route. In which case it might work Mm freestanding. All the beats in the trailer look to me to be very similar to like beats from the original film. Ah, but when you do a legacy sequel trailer, they will always Mm -hmm. highlight the bits that were from the original. What's your favourite nostalgia sequel? Blade Runner is the only one that I thought worked. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Bill and Ted, but kind of on its own merits. The only Star Wars sequel that I liked was the middle one, The Last Jedi, mm-hmm. which was the, the worst one, that, one, you mean? Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the one, one that veered away from the, um, you know, the narrative of the others and tried to at least do something new and original with it. Creed was okay. Do we count Creed as a legacy sequel? Yeah, I, I haven't. I haven't seen it, but did that trade on you loving Rocky to work? Mm. Or was it just set in that world? Because Mad Max Fury Road, some yeah. people would say is a legacy sequel, mm. but I have seen the first two Mad Max films, can't remember much about them, but I didn't need to know anything about Mad Max to love yeah. Fury Road. It's a brilliant so. film. Are you telling me there that you haven't seen Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Is it? No, no, no. Don't feel any shame about that. Mel Gibson is one of the world's worst people. Don't watch him in anything. <laughs> but Tina Turner is in it. In an acting role. Mm. Tina Turner's cool. And Dwarfs with Chainsaws has her minions. It's a very odd, very 80s. You're not selling it. I'm not sure he's trying to. It's a very, very odd film. I I would say Fury Road is probably the closest to Thunderdome rather than Mad Max 1 and 2 in terms of tone. Fury Road is like you remember the Mad Max films being, but Mm. in truth, it's a much better film. Yeah. Well, at least in 15 years, we'll have Tron Legacy Legacy to look forward to.
so it's time for some recommendations. I'm going to go first of all to Andy, who is one of the five people on the planet who's remembered he's got a free Apple TV subscription and has been using it to catch up on the new Tom Hanks film. Is that correct? About once a quarter, we remember that we have Apple TV Plus, and um, it just so happened that in the last month, Finch debuted on Apple. So this stars Tom Hanks as the only human character, um, but if you're going to have one human character in your film, make it Tom Hanks. His character is Finch Weinberg, and the movie sees him trying to survive in a world that has been ravaged by a solar flare, destroying the Earth's ozone layer, or turning the sky into Swiss cheese, as uh, Finch describes it. Temperatures have increased over 70 degrees Celsius outside. UV radiation is so intense that it will burn skin in a matter of seconds. Finch is a robotics engineer. He survived so far based on these skills. At the beginning of the film, we see Finch and one of the robots he's created, a Wally esque carrier robot called Dewey, which has got to be a reference to silent running, trying to scavenge for food for him and his adorable dog named Goodyear. We then see Finch essentially feeding encyclopedic manuals to a new humanoid robot he's building. One of these manuals is how to care for dogs, which is something very important to Finch. He then learns that a massive storm is approaching St. Louis, where he's set up camp, and um, he must activate the robot, teach it to walk, and they must all leave as soon as possible. He hasn't quite digested all the information Finch wanted him to yet, but time is of the essence, so they hit the road and uh, try to get away. The robot has some primary objectives coded in, like Robocop, um, so he must not let any humans come to harm, um, but his primary objective is to look after the dog. Um, So Finch, Goodyear, Dewey, and the new robot, who later acquires a name, but I won't tell you what that is, because it's fun seeing him try names on and eventually settle on something. Is it Barry Spunkflaps? Spoilers, John. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, but they hit the road in Finch's modified motorhome and the rest of the film is about the robot learning the world and Finch's view of it and learning how he fits in. Tom Hanks is his usual charming, lovable self and it's yet another excellent performance from him. Um, there's fun and laughs to be had, but it's not all nicey-nice. So there's a great deal of pleasantness in Finch, but it is counterbalanced by a vein of bleakness that runs right through the film. Everything that he does is a desperate attempt to find or to cling on to hope in a largely hopeless world. There is constant threat at play from the environment, the approaching storm, other humans, um, but it's mostly relegated to background because this isn't Mad Max, it's not an action film. Uh, The peril is just there to drive the character's actions, and ultimately this is a story about the relationship between Finch and his robot. It's all about learning to trust, it's about the legacy we leave behind us, and it's about protecting what's important to you. The robot is played via motion capture by Caleb Landry-Jones, who we may best remember as Banshee from X-Men First Class. He's actually pretty awesome as the robot and does a great job of portraying Mm. a character who is excited to experience his surroundings and learn his place in the world. Uh, He reveals quite a lot about what he's thinking and feeling via body language, particularly with his hands. Um, Jones found a wonderful way to personify this machine without relying on any facial expressions. This excellent non-verbal expression of the robot is demonstrative of the style of the film as a whole, uh, which does a lot of showing rather than telling, which is always a good thing for a film. Uh, For example, instead of wallowing in backstory um, and explanation of what happened to the world, we just pan across a bunch of books at the beginning of a scene uh, showing the topics Finch has been studying in order to, to adapt to his new environment, and you just get the gist of what's happened from that. And it's not about sci-fi and it's not about escaping from peril is really just about two characters it's a two-hander with finch and the robot ultimately it's i find a satisfying mix of bleakness and hope of sadness and joy and of kind of despair and wonder all at the same time and hazel and she said it's a beautifully focused film couldn't take her eyes off the screen it's one of tom hanks's best performances and it's proof that you don't need cgi action and explosions to make a movie captivating if you have a heart, you'll like this film, she said. And she didn't specifically say, <laughs> even if you're John. Uh, she also ended with Tom Hanks for president, which I echo. I have one question. Am I going to be worried about this very good dog? Uh, no, I don't think no, you it's are. dog safe. And it, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, because it's not really so much about the will they escape from danger X. Yeah, the, 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 the dog's okay. And good. yeah, I think you'll, you'll really like it. I have two follow-up questions. Number one, is the dog a good boy? And (laughs) number two, will I be worried about the future of the real world watching how Finch's world has gone to shit? 
in answer to question one, yes, the dog is a very good dog. And also, uh, in a flashback, you get to see the dog as a puppy. So extra oh. points. Um, question two, um, possibly because the solar flare is actually a thing that could happen. Um, I think it's unlikely, but um, you could get end of the world worries from, from it. It doesn't kind of dwell in how horrible this is. It's all very character driven, but this is a cosmic incident that's happened from space. That's correct. Yeah, it's something okay. that would have happened whether we got together and achieved the Paris Agreement or not. Okay. I watched it last night with my wife. I, I perhaps enjoyed it less than you. I've watched a lot of apocalyptic stuff over the last couple of months. It's called the news, Peter. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I watched both series, The Walking Dead, and there's a couple of other things I've been watching, like Why the Last Man, all of which have this sort of look what shit the world's turned into sort of vibe to them. It reminded me a bit of One Man and His Dog. I don't know if John's seen this, but there's a sort of 70s mm-hmm. movie with basically just Don Johnson and his dog living in a bunker after the apocalypse. And it had very much that sort, of, mm. that sort of feel. I enjoyed some of the choices. For instance, at one point, he gets chased by a gang, yet you never see the gang. You just see sort of headlights chasing him. That was a good and interesting choice, I think, to keep people apart so much. Um, but that does mean it can be a little sterile and cold, despite the interactions of the robots. I watched it all, but uh, I think Judith gave up after about half an hour. So I've seen the trailer, and I was on the fence about whether I would prefer to watch the film or go through a real-life solar flare <laughs> apocalypse. <laughs> um, on balance, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the sudden, waiting to see what happens. But you've gone some way to convince me otherwise. From the trailer, it looked very sentimental and mawkish, and would that be an incorrect assumption? There is some sentiment in there, but it's not overpowering. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is very well offset by the kind of hopelessness of the situation. The film begins with um, Tom Hanks in a kind of a special, almost spacesuit thing that he's built to protect himself from the environment uh, out foraging for food. And he's stomping through uh, these old um, battered buildings looking for tins of tuna or whatever. And uh, he's singing to himself while kind of also a little bit grasping for breath, but he's singing American Pie. There's the sentiment, yes. Um, and it's, it's kind of putting on a brave face in the face of hopelessness uh, quite a lot. So I think it's, it's quite well balanced. I don't think you'd find it too saccharine. And you mentioned that Hazel ranks Tom Hanks' performance in this as right up there with his best. Where, where do you stand on that? I find it so difficult to judge because I don't think I've ever seen him be anything but fantastic. Um, but he's, he's... You should watch The Circle. <laughs> oh dear. Um... I've been thinking and I'm struggling to find a Tom Hanks film I like that isn't directed by Steven Spielberg. The Money Pit, come on. The Money Pit and the Burbs, I will allow. Bachelor Party. <laughs> <laughs> the Man with One Red Shoe. What, Castaway? I hate Castaway. <gasps> I hated it. It's a bit like that. Wow. <laughs> so, Andy, how close to The Money Pit is Finch? <laughs> um, I've not seen The Money Pit, so I'm going to say about 40 metres. Mm-hmm. We watched it after our roof started leaking at the beginning of last year. It made us oh, feel good better. <laughs> <laughs> was it a little bit too close to home? It was very much too close to home, but we found it relatable. <laughs> the Burbs is a great film. and Is it well remembered? I don't know. It generally comes up when people talk about great Tom Hanks performances, I think. Mm-hmm. But it was, a big, I mean, it was a flop at the time and then kind of found its way on home video, I think. So, Andy, you'd probably say it's uh, reliably Hanksian in that he is as good in this as he's been in anything. Yeah, I think that's fair. For me, it didn't stand out as his absolute best performance, but that's due to uh, my love of all of his performances, uh, which isn't very helpful, I'm afraid. John, Captain Phillips. Quite like Captain Phillips. It was okay. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Mm. When Tom Hanks cries and over emotes and when he's like, he looks like the melting man in Robocop when the battle of acid gets poured over him. <laughs> John, your That's favourite actor is Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not just think everyone else underacts whenever you see a movie? Potentially, yeah. I don't think Nicolas Cage has done a film as bad as Forrest Gump. It's a very good thing that Hazel isn't here. The worst Nicolas Cage film. <laughs> if Taking Hazel was in the room with me, she would reach through the screen and throttle you. <laughs> and rightly so. Road to Perdition? 
Um, yes, but he was miscast. I don't think he was convinced as a gangster, but the film overall was good. Toy Story? Oh, Toy Story. Yes, I apologise. Yeah. Splash? No, only for Devil Hammer. Big? He's sending that woman to at least five years in jail. He's are you, selfish. Are you implying that's his fault? Yeah. He did say at any point, stop, I'm 12. He led her astray, and now, like, she's in Orange is the New Black, which is a sequel to Big. Oh, dear. I mean, that sounds like your kind of film, John. Philadelphia, that's a good film. He's very I good in that. Gone, you just like the theme tune. I, oh, yes, I knew he'd find that as a justification. <laughs> the Da Vinci Code? Well, he's the bad guy in that, sort of. No, <laughs> everyone in that he's the that hero. the bad guy. Um, so, Andy, how many degrees temperature increase out of 10 would you give Finch? Uh, I would give it a world-ending 8 degrees out of 10. Cool. Mm-hmm. Peter, what would you give it? Um, 7. 7. I mean, I can't give it a rating just on the trailer, could I? That would be unfair. Two. <laughs> but the dog, John. Andy said he was a good boy. I Very have a dog boy. that's a good girl. I don't need another dog. <laughs> Peter, what's your recommendation for us this episode? My recommendation is Last Night in Soho, which is the latest from Edgar Wright, famous for Spaced, Shaun of the Dead and Baby Driver. It's a gorgeous, thrilling movie that really succeeds in doing what only cinema can do, transporting you to a wonderful, magical place before it turns to become something much more dark Can and I just sinister. say cocaine does exactly the same thing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thomas and Mackenzie plays Ellie Turner, who moves from a small town to the centre of London to study fashion. She moves into a Soho bedsit run by Diana Rigg, but every night she begins to experience vivid dreams of a spectacular red and neon-soaked fantasy version of 60s London but also plagued by all the sleazy stuff which Soho is notorious for. She takes on a different persona in her dreams, played by Anna Taylor-Joy. Some amazing work with mirrors constantly remind us the two girls are one and the same, often swapping between them multiple times in a single shot without missing a beat. Ellie starts to dress like her dream world doppelganger, and gradually it becomes hard to tell where one ends and the other begins but soon she starts to realise something horrible happened back then, and the whole tone shifts from fantasy to psychological horror as she starts to question the reality of what she's witnessed and tries to solve its mysteries. I thought the whole movie was a wonderful and brilliant piece of cinema, and I absolutely loved it. As with Baby Driver, you can really feel music running like a pulse throughout the movie, with some great songs that feel like scenes evolved around them rather than being dropped in as a cheap nostalgia fix. Matt Smith and Terence Stamp really make the most of their seedy pimp roles, mixing charm and danger in a deliciously seductive combination. And Dana Rigg is fabulous in what was to be her final role. It gives her a lot to do, and it really is a fitting tribute to her. The lead was fine, despite a very squeaky voice, but her relative straightness at the beginning serves as a contrast to all the other larger-than-life characters. The technical trickery in the mirror shots was amazing, and so skillfully handled it was never once confusing. It felt truly inspired. I highly recommend this film. It's a delicious confection of a movie, with something darker at its centre, and I can't imagine anyone not finding it wonderful. See it on a big screen if you can, but don't miss seeing it. John, I know you've seen it because you mentioned Um, it last time. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It's probably my film of the year so far. As somebody who loves that area of London, kind of give me the nostalgic feels, oddly enough, for somewhere mm-hmm. that I've not been able to go for a couple of years. I thought it was really, really well acted. I thought the effects were great. I loved the references to British horror of the 60s. There's a lot of Peeping Tom in there, if people have seen that. And a lot of um, Dario Argento. I was thinking of Suspiria just from the vivid red colour you get through yeah. so many of those scenes. Edgar Wright obviously loves the history of cinema and loves the horror genre. And it takes all those references, but those references are never overpowering. Mm. You could feel the love for that time period, couldn't you? Very much so, yeah. yeah. And John, this was the film that got you back to the cinema. Is it that was. Correct? This is my first post-pandemic film. And I'm, I'm glad I saw it in a big screen. Because it really does deserve it. I say the photography and the sound design and the soundtrack as well. Um, if you Particularly if you love like, your 60s music, the soundtrack is amazing. It's like a greatest hits of the era. The effects work, a lot of it was done in camera. Hmm. And if you listen to some of the making of interviews Edgar Wright has given, 
that was quite important and the trickery is there and it's astonishing but again it's always in service of the plot mm. and the characters there's a dance routine where they're yeah. dancing and they're constantly swapping between the two girls mm-hmm. and it's it's all seamless you know you, you can't see the joins at all we worked out how they did it after several minutes of trying to work it out and there was an interview with edgar Wright the next day on the radio where it kind of confirmed mm-hmm. how it was done but the fact that it was done in camera with sort of minimal cgi is a testament to his filmmaking skills so with the sexual politics at the end mm-hmm. in the last third i'm not 100 percent sure about um yeah, in terms um, of getting the old audience sympathies are meant to be with yes amy and i had been to see it um she liked it didn't love it and that was one of the things mm-hmm. that it kind of went downhill towards mm-hmm. that last mm-hmm. act for her she loved those bits at the start with ellie not fitting in in Diana Rigg coming into it and those initial 60s scenes uh, once what she termed as the Doctor Who men came into mm. it and I won't say exactly yeah. who the Doctor we're Who men are. We're not talking about Matt Smith here. I we're, not talking about, we're not talking about <laughs> yeah. Matt Smith. We're talking yeah. about um, some effects work that reminded her of a naff Doctor Who episode and from that point on it did lose her a little uh-huh. bit. Um, I stuck with it a bit more but that was my least favourite part as well. Certainly there are great female characters in mm-hmm. this film and christy wilson cairns was edgar wright's co-writer on this and i'd like to think she helped to bring some of that to it we both really like thomas and mackenzie as ellie annie taylor joy is usually one of the best things if not the best thing in any film she's in and diana rigg was spectacular in this film she will be missed because between this character and the queen of thorns in game of thrones she was really on a roll towards yeah, the end of her life definitely the supporting characters were a little bit sketchy the other students kind of little kind of caricatures of the bitchy students at uh, a college however as the introverts in our respective unis both amy and i really related to those initial scenes of arriving at uni not quite fitting in not really being big drinkers and just wanting to have a can of coke and sit in a corner and be quiet I don't know if that's Edgar Wright's experience of university or college, but it felt very relatable. So, uh, Andy, you have not seen Last Night in Soho. Of Edgar Wright's work, I've only seen um, the Cornetto trilogy with uh, Peg and Frost, and I Mm. really, really love two of those films. Can I guess which of the three you don't like? I can guess. I'm quite sure you can. Is it the one that's rubbish? Yeah, it is. It is. If you mean the third one, I I disagree. The last 20 minutes are great. Yeah. Was it? Is it the world's end, Andy? <laughs> oh, God, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, I only yeah. ever dislike <laughs> terrible films. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I really, really love his style. Um, but those are comedy films, and this is going to be something completely different. Um, and I, I think I'd be really interested just to, to see mm. what he brings to the table in this kind of, kind of environment. Um, his style is dialed back quite yeah, a bit. This, that kind of like quick shot, quick edit, cutty type thing isn't really there to be seen. It's shot very much like a, a classic horror film. Yeah, I thought it probably would be, and that's, uh, I reckon, for the best. Uh, I don't think I have um, any nostalgia whatsoever for 1960s London, but I don't think that's going to put me off. I think I may well give this a try. At the very least, it sounds really interesting, but I think it could be a good, good experience. And one thing you mentioned, Peter, that we haven't talked about too much, the music. Mm. The soundtrack is fantastic. It's great. I get a little bit nervous when people mention how good a movie's soundtrack is because I think uh, while music's incredibly important to a mm-hmm. movie, um, a lot of the time you shouldn't really be noticing it that much. Is it well handled in exactly the way that Zack Snyder doesn't handle music in his films? Every song fits and they feel mm-hmm. a part of it and they help create a world as a cohesive whole. They don't feel like they were just rammed in there for the hell of it or to make up a soundtrack album. Cool. Yeah, I, I will try it at some stage. When it comes to VHS. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, how many What's Your Name loves out of ten would you give it? <laughs> I would give it uh, nine and a half, without, and, and a, that's a strong nine and a half as well. Mm-hmm. That is a very high recommendation. Mm. It's a nine for me just because of some of the third act. Mm. I'd, I'd be an eight, I think. Andy? From the trailer, I'm going to give it a two. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of two out of tens, John, you've got a recommendation. I have. When you is, say this one, is this one you actually liked this time? Yes, yes, oh. it is. I have been watching Chucky's Back, 
everybody's favourite ginger killer doll. Back. I've been watching his back and his front and his sides. Chucky the Killer Doll of Child's Play fame has made his way to TV. So the series has been going since 1988, where we had the, the first three Child's Play films, which were quite straight horror films. Where they went into sort of Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky, which were very, very unusual comedy, horror hybrids, but very creative. Little messy in places, but, but fun to watch. And then more recently, the series has kind of slipped a little bit into straight to DVD, which were less interesting, but were still, you know, above the average for those, those sort of films, as long as you didn't go with any great expectations. There was a reboot a couple of years ago, which didn't really work with um, Mark Hamill as the good guy doll and Aubrey Plaza, mm. which was set in a different timeline to the originals. But now with the TV series, we're back onto the original timeline. One of the things about the Child's Play franchise, apart from the reboot, is that it's had pretty much the same creative team throughout. Um, Don Mancini created the character and has written every film and has directed or co-directed the TV series and a lot of the previous films. Brad Dourif has been there as the voice of the doll from the very start. So it has a, a cohesion and a timeline that works in a way when we talked about Halloween with the constant reboots mm-hmm. and the constant creative changes doesn't have. We're now uh, a new eight-part TV series which comes to Sky Max on the 3rd of December. I believe the entire series is dropping at once. I hope it doesn't get damaged. I know. I, I hope it's carefully put down because a damaged doll is still a dangerous doll. And what we have is basically what I would describe as Heathers with a killer doll. And if that floats your boat, then mm. this is the show for you. Isn't there a Heather's TV show at the moment? There was well? a Heather's TV show that came and went very quickly. My recollection was that there was something that happened in real life that was... School shootings, I think. Yeah. Mm. So I think it did get shown in the end, maybe a year or so after it was actually made. But it didn't really go anywhere. At the moment, Heather's is kind of touring as a musical, which has been very, very <laughs> successful. Weird. Is it called Child's Play, this new show? Is it called Chucky? What's it called? It's called Chucky. Okay. And if all I know of Chucky and Child's Play is the time that the doll tag-teamed with Rick Steiner in WCW in the late mm-hmm. 90s, am I going to be able to jump into Chucky the show, or do I need to have seen some Child's Plays? Right, let's get into that. And, and did you, uh, just before that, do you remember when Chucky teamed with Rick Steiner? Uh, I didn't see it when it happened. Um, I have been made aware of it and oh see. <laughs> <laughs> sorry john continue so i'm sorry I, I, was, I want to ask about this so how did they animate the dolls for, for that what did they do poorly <laughs> okay was it a guy in a chucky suit oh no or, it was an actual doll or did they just tie his arms and legs to the wrestler i don't think the doll actually ended up doing anything i think rick did all the work there's okay. a lot of promo well, i remember the a promos, lot of promos yeah. yeah but yeah sorry yeah can i jump into this show Let's get into that, because what we start with is a show set in Hackensack, which is, I think is in New Jersey. Also a Fountains of Wayne song. Of course, yeah. And we start with Jake, who is a high school kid who is not unpopular. He has a, a dad. His mum has previously died, so it's sort of some trauma there. And he is an artist who likes making sculptures out of doll parts and things like that. So he's kind of like this slightly arty, gothy, edge of the cool kids kind of guy. He goes to a jumble sale where he picks up a good guy doll, which turns out to be Chucky, the doll who is possessed by the spirit of a serial killer called Charles Lee Ray. The doll goes on the rampage, killing the kids at school that Jake doesn't get on with. Hmm. If you imagine the doll in the Christian Slater role in Heathers, and the doll is kind of encouraging these murderous impulses in Jake. At the same time, Jake has a crush on a, another boy at school who does a true crime podcast and whose mother is the local detective. So the first four episodes are great. You're balancing this kind of high school environment with a crazy killer doll. And it stands on its own and it's a great little story and you wonder what's, what, what's going to happen. And I was really enjoying it. You would just drop in and enjoy it. Good. Episode five, unfortunately, is where the fan service begins. It's only halfway through. You're getting flashbacks to the previous movies. Mm. Characters who have appeared in one of the straight-to-video sequels suddenly having a major role for no reason. 
Jennifer Tilly appearing as Jennifer Tilly possessed by the doll, which happened at the end of Seed of Chucky. And then even the Alex Vincent, who was the kid in the first Child's Play film when he was seven years old, appears as a 35-year-old. Recognisably. It's the same actor. So suddenly, what was this really good, nice, self-contained mm. horror story? Really funny, badly acted, but witty. Suddenly, it just turns into this. Here's every character you've ever seen from every Child's Play film, and mm. they're all suddenly coming back, and you will be completely and utterly lost, unless you were somebody who has watched every film since 1988. And they do a terrible way of explaining who these characters are and, mm. and why they're back. It's a shame. And as somebody who presumably has seen every Child's Play film since 1988, did it work for you? No, because you, you get that, um, we talked about in Ghostbusters, that kind of, oh, it's this, oh, it's that, that kind of moment is obviously what they're going for. But I was enjoying the story mm. and suddenly piling in all these references and it becomes, a, to some extent, a completely different show whilst the other show is still going on in the background. So it just becomes a, a real confusing hodgepodge. You were doing so well there, John. That was almost a really positive mm. recommendation. <laughs> so it's a really positive recommendation for the first half of the show. It may be able to tie it all together, maybe in the last episode uh, or two, but I, 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 I have my doubts. I gather Louise isn't a fan. Yeah, um, Louise has recorded for us um, her review, which okay. she would like to have uh, played as balance to any positive comments <laughs> I may okay. have made about the show. I look forward to hearing it. Obviously, this is for TV. How gory is it? Um, very gory. It's on the sci-fi network in America, which I believe is cable. Mm -hmm. But certainly it's it's as bloody as the horror films. It's very 18 rated. Mm -hmm. Chucky basically gets one elaborate death per episode, which kind of comes two thirds of the way through. And you can see it, it building up to that. But the, the, it's creative. Um, the doll work is amazing. It's, it's still mainly done with puppets. And what is quite nice is actually um, in the cast list at the end, it has starving, and then it has so and so as puppeteer one, so and so as puppeteer. So they actually are given credit as cast members of the show, which I think is only mm. fair because the stuff that they do is absolutely amazing most of the time. And Andy, any questions for John? Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it, it sounds like it would be a bit of fun. Probably not my kind of thing, but I might enjoy it a bit. But then it will descend into something that I'll really dislike. So um, episode five has put me right off, I'm afraid. Has anybody other than me seen any of the Child's Play films? Yes, I've seen nope. probably four or five of them. So nobody's stuck the way through all seven plus no. the reboots. <laughs> so the thing is, um, they're simulcasting it with American TV. So I was going to stay up and watch it, but it turned out because it's on like at nine o'clock at night in America, it's on about five o'clock in the morning over here so I'm up all night to get Chucky why did we not know that joke was coming this is the third time he's cracked it just on the podcast let alone cracking it in real life you knew it was coming at some point shameful so what number of Charles Play sequel out of 10 would you give it John I genuinely don't know um, <laughs> that's useful it was on an 8 out of 10 until the last couple of episodes mm. It's now down to a five or six out of ten, and I will report back after the finale to see whether it sticks to the landing, as they say. Mm -hmm. And is it getting a second series? The ratings have been good, so I think so. I mean, it's a franchise that's kept ticking and ticking. Uh, okay, well, let's hear what Louise had to say. Oh, it's brilliant. It's the best thing I've ever seen. I give it 12 out of 10. I'm surprised she liked it so much after yeah, what you said. Yeah, that was really, really positive. <laughs> the Chucky TV series is like a lurid school play performed in the abandoned mansion of a rock star who died of bad taste. It piles endless, soapy domestic traumas upon its charmless teenage leads, which is a real stretch for the single expression they're all sharing, before slaughtering their parents' cartoon style for cheap lols to a soundtrack of screeching carousel music. Loads of clearly reluctant former stars of the various Child's Play films have been dragged back from their quiet retail jobs and retirements and thrust in front of the camera again, just so nerds like John can spend the whole show saying, ooh, you'll never guess who that uncomfortable-looking person with no screen presence is. 
Someone needs to rescue Fiona Durif from the Chucky family business because she deserves much better than being shoehorned into a bad wig and latex man makeup because she happens to look more like her dad than her dad does now. The only reason I stay in the room while this is on is because I enjoy watching another terrible actor get offed every episode. Avoid. She hates it. (laughs) (laughs) You do surprise me. (laughs) And finally, to bring us out of killer doll infested hell, Dan's going to lift us up with his recommendation. I hope so. So at time of recording, we're a couple of days out from the debut of Hawkeye on Disney+. And it's a series I didn't think I'd be really looking forward to in the MCU, but I actually am. And that's in large part due to my recommendation this episode, Mm -hmm. which is the Hawkeye comic series from about nine or ten years ago by Matt Fraction and David Ager which seems to be setting the tone and the style for what the Hawkeye series is going to be. It really focuses on Clint Barton as the Avenger who doesn't have superpowers. He's kind of a charming, lovable loser, having to deal with very down-to-earth problems like helping look after an apartment building, gangsters in tracksuits who say the word bro a lot, trying to be a mentor to his mentee, Kate Bishop who is also a Hawkeye, and looking after a one-eyed dog called Lucky who really loves pizza. And over the course of each issue, Hawkeye has to deal with problems that largely are of his own making. Uh, He does something wrong or does something stupid or reckless. Kate has to try and help him get out of it. Things go wrong. It all generally works out in the end. Uh, But if he'd just been a little bit more together, and a little bit more self-aware, he'd not have the trouble he does. And he hasn't got superpowers to get him out of it. He can't shoot laser beams from his eyes. He can't fly away. He's got to deal with things like having to make sure all of the payments are made on time and that the dog has got enough pizza to seem through Christmas and that the rooftop barbecue on the apartment building goes well, all while the tracksuit bros are coming after him. So it's just got this really lovely, not very superhero-y tone to it. The relationship between Clint and Kate in the comics is really, really great. The banter between them is something that Haley Steinfeld and Jeremy Renner have said has been transferred over to the series. And she is a fantastic character in this series. She was in the Young Avengers around the same time that this was being written, and she's one of the best things in that as well. It bodes really, really well for the series coming up. It's really charming. It's the most I've ever liked Hawkeye. <laughs> um, so, uh, to be fair, if you said like this isn't the biggest pile of shit ever made, it would still be the most oh, I've ever liked Hawkeye. Oh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the the writing, the charm of it, the style of drawing and illustration is really distinctive as well. And if some of what's great about this comic series makes it over to the Disney Plus show we could have a really great, possibly the top MCU series so far. Mm. If you're planning on saving up Hawkeye, the series, for when all six episodes have landed on Disney+, Plus, you could do a lot worse than reading this comic in advance to get you in the mood for a bit of bow and arrow action. Is it available as a collection? It is. I read volume one of The Omnibus, which I think was the first 12 issues, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's all you need. I think there is a volume two. It's called Hawkeye, My Life as a Weapon. But yeah, it all looks very promising for Hawkeye the Show, and I didn't expect Mm -hmm. I would be saying this about Hawkeye the Show. Oh, wow. Um, Andy, seeing as you obviously hate everything that John stands for, I assume you adore Hawkeye. I like Hawkeye, and I think the show (laughs) looks really interesting. (laughs) Why are we surprised? I I genuinely do. And uh, to be perfectly honest, ever since learning about John's irrational hatred for Hawkeye, it's made me like him even more. (laughs) Um, But the the comic sounds good, and uh, the show looks good from the trailers, and Mm. I reckon John's going to love it. You know what? (laughs) <laughs> those trailers it looks quite uh, good doesn't it yeah <laughs> there's a there's a sort of diehardy feel about it it's mm-hmm. the christmas stuff isn't it and sexy velma appears in the latest trailer so she has uh, some role in it good you'd be referring to linda cardellini there i assume yes so yeah none of us have seen uh, any of the episodes just yet so uh hopefully it's gonna live up to the trailers and be as good as it looks oh one important question what flavor pizza does the dog like I don't think he's fussy. 
Oh, right. Uh, I think if there's pizza available, lucky the pizza dog will just have a slice. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem with that in our house is you, you give the dog pizza, she'll eat off the topping and then she'll take the crust and she'll go and bury it in the sofa somewhere. <laughs> and then weeks later, you'll find bits of pizza turning up. Uh, you see, I, I, um, I don't feed the dog pizza toppings, but she loves a bit of crust. And she will sit and just stare at me while I eat the pizza until there's one bit of crust left and then she'll start crying until I give it to her. <laughs> And then does she eat it, or does she take no, it she, somewhere um, and bury it? She eats it. Oh. She buries um, treat sticks elsewhere. Mm. Well, last time we had pizza, the cat decided, because the pizza boxes were warm from the delivery, that there would be great <laughs> things to lie on top of while we were trying to <laughs> eat the pizzas. So we were unable to access our pizza uh, because there was a cat on top of it. Andy, pizza cats. <gasps> Samurai pizza cats. <gasps> from Mars? <laughs> How do the podcasts deal with pizza? Uh, we don't let them near it. They'd probably not be interested except just getting in the way. They do like to spoil things, so they'd probably just try to bat it out of our hands while we're eating it. Yeah. So we have a special pizza room that we eat the pizza in that's inaccessible to cats. It's a very normal <laughs> setup we have. So we said they just kind of get in the way and spoil things. If your pizza night was an Avengers movie, the cats would be Hawkeye. <laughs> And John, do you want to give us an alternate take of that so that your true feelings about Hawkeye, as they will be this time next week, can be expressed? So Hawkeye, he's great, isn't he? He's really good and funny, and he's like the, the star of a show. He could fire an arrow at me any time. Yeah, how are you going to feel if by the end of this series you actually think Hawkeye's pretty great? He'll question everything you believe in. I will. Presuming I he doesn't hand the name and all the bows over to Kate Bishop. Which, which he probably will. Which he probably will, which is no bad thing because she's awesome. So has anybody hated a character and then had their minds completely changed by a sequel or a, a character development? I know, for example, Andy, you didn't really rate Thor until Ragnarok. <laughs> right. Happy opposite day to you too, John. <laughs> uh. I never really liked Angel in Buffy, but by the time he was in Angel the series, I did quite enjoy him. So, Whereas, say, Spike was Spike from the off. Yeah. It took taking Angel out of that relationship, will they, won't they, mm -hmm. kill her, kill him, for me to really gel with him as a character. So maybe him? I thought Kylo Ren became a more interesting character, but I never disliked him. I, I was thinking more Game of Thrones characters that were quite annoying or not as well liked at the start towards the end as they got more and more layers developed on them mm -hmm. got more interesting like say uh, Theon mm -hmm. once he'd been through all of the suffering he'd been through he yeah. was a much mm -hmm. more interesting character to watch Jamie Lannister I think season three was the turning point where he got really complex. He was quite shallow mm -hmm. at first. Yeah and he was cool in that what a horrible man kind of way but Sansa, potentially. Mm, yeah. She's a very different character at the end to how she is in season one, pining after Joffrey. But that's the more you to use wrestling parlance, a face turn or a heel turn, mm -hmm. turning someone bad or working on them to turn them good rather than the character being the same. I think that's what Hawkeye the series is going to do. It's going to take Hawkeye out of these massive world ending situations. Where he would die in a second, let's be mm. frank have him teaching Kate to be a Hawkeye and dealing with street-level stuff. Because the stakes generally have gone up and up and up. Even Black Widow, by the end, was big deal situations. If Hawkeye doesn't suddenly turn into a massive floating fortress in the sky in episode 5, we could be seeing that mm. as mean, it's, a kind it's of original possible thing. He does. Nothing is impossible with Marvel. So we never asked you then how many, oh look, I've got another... Out of <laughs> oh, look, here's millions of spaceships and I've got an arrow out of ten. I would give it nine cool arrows out of ten. Sounds good. But yeah, if you're looking forward to Haw Hawkeye the series, Hawkeye the comic is a great place to make yourself even more excited to see what's going to happen on the show. Okay, so that's our show for this week. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else so that people's eyeballs may go. And if you do that, then Dan, you have a special treat for our listeners. 
in 30 years from now, we will make a legacy film all about you and the time you listened to this episode of the podcast and gave us a five-star review. It'll be littered with nostalgic cameos from 2021's finest nerdy podcasters, and uh, you will find yourself getting emotional about it. But only in 30 years' time, no sooner. Wow. Will we recreate Peter using CGI? Oh, you bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Hate you, John. (laughs) Sorry. So that's all for this episode you've been listening to. A man who's off to find a dog to share a pizza with. A man who's going to go build a robot and teach it to explain to John how excellent an actor Tom Hanks is. The man who's been sharing this podcast with his 60s doppelganger. A man who, as a child, was very ill, contacted the Make-A-Wish Foundation and wished for an Avenger to visit him to make his stay in hospital better. And bloody Hawkeye turned up. Still bitter. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Name Tom Hanks films and I'll give them marks out of 10. Oh, I'll just assume you'll say two to all of them. Toy Story. Toy Story, eight. Toy Story, two. Nine. Toy Story, three. Eight. The Terminal. Two. That accent. Jesus Christ. The Catherine Zeta Judge should never be allowed in front of a camera. Bachelor Party. Never seen it. Seven Private Ryan. Um, Eight for the first 20 minutes, two for the remainder of the film. But Nathan Fillion's in it. Yes, he is, yeah. But Big. Three, and all three of those points are for the dancing on the keyboard. The Green Mile. Uh, racist and mousist. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, you do realise this is you know, just an extension of John's hatred of all things joyful and optimistic. I mean, we, we overlap with a lot of things there. <laughs> You've got mail. So what I was going to say is when I hate Tom Hanks films, there's only one thing I hate more than Tom Hanks films. Is that Meg Ryan? And that's films? Tom Hanks films with Meg Ryan in <laughs> To be fair, um, we tried watching Sleepless in Seattle at some point, mm. maybe towards the end of last year, and it's fucking dreadful. Apollo 13. Yeah, four and a bit. You know, you know it gets back okay. Catch me if you can. Um, oh, I like to catch me if you can. That's a Spielberg thing, so that gets a seven. Polar Express. Oh, creepy. Oh, that's a nine because it's a film populated entirely by dead-eyed zombies, <laughs> so I felt an affinity for them. <laughs> da Vinci Code. Minus infinity. Yes. Angels and demons. I haven't seen it. Even worse, though. Inferno. There's three. Fucking hell. Turner and Hooch. Oh, man. Drool and death. Joe versus the volcano. Uh, three for the bit when he jumps to the volcano. Have you actually seen it? You're just guessing the I'm just guessing. I haven't seen it either. <laughs> <laughs>